I'd ask you to turn, if you have your Bible with you, to Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then in the rest of the book of Romans, he tells us how a person given totally to the Lord is to act. The rest of the book of Romans tells us how a living sacrifice lives. And in verses 3 to 8 of chapter 12, he tells us how he lives in relation to himself. He humbly understands who he is in the body of Christ. And then in verses 9 to 21, he tells us how he lives in relation to others. He lovingly and genuinely puts others ahead of himself. And then in chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, he's going to tell us today how he lives in relation to the government. Now the key word in relation to God is sacrifice. The key word in relation to myself is humility. The key word in relation to others is love. What's the key word in relationship to the government? What is God's will for me in relationship to the state? Well, look at chapter 13 and verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. The key word in my relationship to the government is subjection. That word means literally to place yourself under. And obviously here, in reference to the government, it means to place yourself under their authority to obey. You say, well, wait a minute. Why should I be submissive to the government? They're just a bunch of crooks. You ever find yourself turning off the evening news, muttering, government's a bad idea? You know, all you see is nonstop corruption, self-interest, power-wielding, game-playing. It's become popular today to criticize the government because it's so easy. Talk radio does it all day long. So you may be saying, well, how could God expect me to be subject to the government? This is a tough exhortation. It doesn't make any sense. Give me one good reason why I ought to be submissive to the government. Well, Paul anticipates that. And so he gives you three reasons. Three reasons why the Christian ought to be submissive to the government. Reason number one, we're to obey the government for God's sake in verses 1 and 2. Notice the rest of verse 1. It says, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Did you get that? Governments are established by God. They're God's idea. He established them to provide society with structure and order. So that tells me it doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter if I voted for him. It doesn't matter whether I agree with his policies. It doesn't matter whether I like his personality. I am to respect his position. The authority that the government has is derived authority. It is given by God. 
You remember in John chapter 19 when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate? And Pilate was kind of strutting around, interrogating Jesus, trying to get some answers out of Jesus. And Jesus was silent. And so Pilate said to him, why don't you answer me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Your authority is derived authority. Now that was specifically true of the Roman government in the time of Christ, but it's also true of every government. Because he says here in verse 1, there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, does that mean that God is responsible for Adolf Hitler and Fidel Castro and Saddam Hussein and Omar Gaddafi? No. You see, God established government, but that doesn't make him responsible for the abuse by its leaders. God also established marriage. Does that make him responsible for Scott Peterson, the California man who murdered his wife and unborn son? No. God established marriage, but he isn't responsible for everyone who's married. Incidentally, those are the two human institutions that God established. Marriage and government. And man can't live without them. You've got the individual unit of the family. You've got the collective whole of the government. And both are crumbling before our eyes today. And that's why one day in the future, Satan's going to come along with the Antichrist and he's going to try to put the government back together into a one-world government. You say, well, then if I'm under a cruel, corrupt government, this passage doesn't apply, right? Wrong. Paul wrote this passage when he was under Nero. If you know anything about history, you know that Nero was one of the cruelest of all the Roman emperors. Shortly after this was written, Paul would be put to death by the government. But in that context, Paul says... Be subject to the governing authorities. You see, the only time when it's proper not to obey the authority of the government is when the government steps out of its area of authority. And when does the government step out of its area of authority? When it steps into the area of religion. Remember Daniel? The government said, you can't pray to anyone except the king for 30 days. They stepped out of their area of authority. What did Daniel do? He broke the law. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The government said, you've got to bow down and worship this golden image. They stepped out of their area of authority. What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They broke the law. The government said to Peter, don't speak anymore in Jesus' name. They stepped out of their area of authority. And what did Peter do? He broke the law. 
You see, when government crosses the line of its authority and goes into the area of religion, then we may find ourselves having to say with Peter, we must obey God rather than men. People often ask me if I believe in the separation of church and state, and I say, absolutely. But I don't believe in the separation of God and state. You see, that's what Paul is teaching here. Governments are established by God, and they get their authority from God, and so government is a God-ordained institution. And because of that, we are to be submissive to the government. And if we're not, then two things will result. And he mentions those two things in verse 2. He starts verse 2 with the word, therefore. And he's going to tell us two things that apply, two consequences if we don't obey the government. Number one is in the first part of verse 2. He says, therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Did you get that? When you disobey the government, who are you disobeying? You're disobeying God. When you go 85 miles an hour down the interstate, who are you disobeying? You're disobeying God. If the government says we're going to have a a military draft again, I want everybody in a certain age frame to sign up, and you refuse to sign up, who are you disobeying? You're disobeying God. When you fail to claim income on your federal income tax form, who are you disobeying? You're disobeying God. When you tear those tags off your mattress, (laughs) see, when you resist, if you didn't get that one, ask your spouse. When you resist the government, you are resisting and opposing God. And then he gives a second application or a second consequence at the end of verse 2 where he says, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. When you disobey the government, You're going to get the consequences, and he says the consequences are condemnation or judgment. You see, God has not only given authority to governments, he has also given them the teeth to carry out that authority. And so when you oppose the government, when you disobey the government, you are going to be rightly judged. And so reason number one for obeying the government is that governmental authority comes from God. Now let me add a footnote right here. The separation of church and state doesn't mean that those in the church should stay out of the government. Christians should get involved in government. Joseph was high up in the government of Egypt. Daniel was high up in the government of Babylon. So Christians ought to get involved in government. On the other hand, let me say this. Just because a person is a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that I should vote for them. I had somebody call me several years ago telling me what I ought to do for the campaign 
for Pat Robertson. Now, the assumption was, he's a Christian, you're a Christian, you should be working for his campaign. They never asked me if that's the particular guy that I wanted to have as president. You see, sometimes we get a little too simplistic because there are wonderful Christians who would make terrible presidents. In fact, if you ask my opinion, we've had some wonderful Christians who were terrible presidents. You see, if I wanted to fly today from here to Los Angeles and you said you got your choice, you can have a Christian pilot who's never flown before, or you can have an atheist who's got 10,000 flying miles. See, I would fly Air Atheist. And when it comes to government, regardless of whether it's a Christian leader or a non-Christian leader, we're to be subject. Because governmental authority comes from God. So reason number one is it's for God's sake. Then he gives us a second reason. And that is I'm to obey the government for my own sake. In verses 3 and 4. Notice what he says. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Now, governments in general operate under this principle. They praise those who do good, And they punish those who do evil. And that is true whether it's a government that is democratic or dictatorial or socialistic or communistic. The general principle is they're going to praise those who do good. They're going to punish those who do evil. At this point, let me add another editorial comment. Far too often, people have tended to deify democracy. And I think we need to be very careful in our highly opinion assessments of the validity of one form of government over another. You see, God is far more concerned about whether a government carries out its God-ordained mission than what kind of form of government it's set up under. In fact... When you think about it, when God established the nation of Israel, did he make it a democracy? No. Democracy wasn't his first choice. He made it a theocracy. And when they didn't like that and he changed governments, democracy wasn't even his second choice. He set up a king. And when God set up the church, did he set up a democracy? No, he didn't. And in the kingdom to come, in the future, when Jesus comes back, is he going to have a democracy? No. So be careful that you don't deify democracy. Our natural tendency is to Americanize Scripture. God is not an American. Romans chapter 13 applies to every Christian in every age and every culture under every form of government. And so whatever form of government I happen to find myself under, I'm to be subject. Because governments are set up to praise those who do good 
and to punish those who do evil. And so the second reason I ought to obey is for my own good. In fact, if you look carefully at this passage, you'll notice that three times in this passage, the government is referred to as ministers of God. And even in the book of Acts, where there was so much persecution on the early church, it's interesting to note that I counted at least four times that Paul was protected from persecution by the Roman government. It happens in Acts 16, 18, 19, and 22. You see, apart from government, there would be no protection, no safety, no order. Everyone would have to be a criminal to survive. There's an interesting verse in the book of Judges. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. No government. You know what the next phrase says? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When there's no government, there's no restraint and no control. Government is set up to praise those who do good and to punish those who do evil. And so who has to fear the government? Those who do evil. So let me ask you this. When you're driving down the road and you see a police officer, do you panic? And if so, why do you panic? You panic because you're probably doing evil. Someone said, the last part of my body to get saved is my right foot. (laughs) See, policemen, this passage says policemen, we've got several in the audience today, policemen are ministers of God. You ought to drive by police cars and say, there's my minister. You see, their job is not only to punish evil, it's to praise those who do good. You ought to be being stopped by policemen to say, man, you're doing a great job. (laughs) But he also says, if you do evil, you've got reason to be afraid because the government is also a minister of God to avenge to administer wrath. In fact, notice that phrase in verse 4, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. God didn't give the government the sword as simply a meaningless symbol. They have been given authority and they have been given the sword to avenge evil. You know, before I was a Christian, and even while I was a young Christian, I was against capital punishment based on my own opinion. But as I studied Scripture, I came to the conviction that capital punishment is something God has ordained. In fact, let me show you a couple verses. Go go back to Genesis chapter 9. Before the law was ever given, in Genesis chapter 9, God makes a statement to Noah right after the flood. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. If man sheds blood, God says, by man 
that person is to have his blood shed. And the reason he gives for capital punishment is man's high dignity. He's made in the image of God. You say, well, man is too valuable to put to death. Well, it's the value of life on which God establishes the principle of capital punishment. And then if you go and look in the law, in the time of the law, over and over again we find that people were taken outside the city and they were stoned to death. Capital punishment. In fact, if you look in there, you'll find that they were put to death for things that we don't consider capital offenses even today. And so all through the law, God established capital punishment. And I hear people who say today, well, capital punishment is not a deterrent to sin. Well, I don't know of one person who's received capital punishment who ever committed a crime again. It's a deterrent to sin, and God established it in his law as he laid it down. So it, it was mentioned before the law. It was mentioned during the time of the law. And then it was mentioned even after the law. If you go to Acts chapter 25 and verse 11... There's an interesting comment there by Paul, Acts 25, 11. He says, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. If I've done a crime that deserves capital punishment, Paul says, I deserve it and I'll accept it. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. Paul says, if I've done a crime worthy of capital punishment, execute me. But my argument is that I'm innocent. And then when we come to Romans chapter 13, we find that same standard set up. Government does not bear the sword for nothing. And so Paul says, be subject to the government because their function is to praise good and punish evil. And so it's for your own good to obey. And then he gives us a third reason in Romans 13. I'm to obey the government for conscience sake. Notice verse 5. Wherever it is necessary to be in subjection... I'm sorry, wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. You see, wrath should not be the only deterrent for my doing wrong. Paul says, I ought to do what's right for conscience' sake. That means I shouldn't say, here's a stretch of highway and I don't see any cops. And besides, I've got my fuzz buster going. Or I know they're not going to audit me because they never have. Or I know, I know the light's red, but there's nobody around. And who's going to know? See, Paul says your, your lone motive is not just, I don't want to get caught. Your motive ought to be, I want a clear conscience. It's not just that external motive. We've got an internal motive. And so my motive for obedience is not just police officers and judges and IRS officials. It's my conscience. 
heard about the fellow who wrote the letter to the IRS and said, I cheated on my taxes last year and I haven't been able to sleep ever since, so I'm sending you $300. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> you see, the conscience of a Christian ought to be renewed to the point where it says, I do right not just to stay out of trouble, I do right to please God. Paul put it this way in 1 Peter 2.13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to kings or to governors. You see, that's the highest motive for me as a Christian. I want to please the Lord. And so I do it for conscience' sake. And so Paul says, here's three reasons to obey the government. For God's sake, He's the authority behind it. For your own sake, if you do good, you'll probably receive praise. And third, for conscience' sake, because you as a Christian want to please the Lord. And then as he closes out this passage, he gets real specific. Notice verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Now, anybody have trouble understanding that? You want me to go back to the Greek and see if I can get an alternate reading here? Paul says, pay your taxes. Even Jesus, who owned everything, paid taxes. And Jesus said to us in Luke 20, 25, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. When he was Chief Justice of the United States, William Howard Taft had this to say on the subject of taxes. He says, It is the duty of every citizen to avoid all and evade none. Take all your lawful deductions and then pay what is due. Tax evasion is wrong. Tax avoidance is right. Now, taxes is one of those areas that really tests our spiritual climate because it goes back to the conscience in verse 6. I probably should have preached this sermon about two weeks ago. You know, on, on, on April 15th, I was finishing up my taxes. When do you do yours? And, and I, was, I was finishing up my taxes, and, and I discovered a deduction that I'd never noticed before. And I got all excited about it because it was going to save me a lot of money. In fact, I got so excited about it that I went back and realized I haven't taken this deduction in the past few years, so I went and got forms for amended tax returns. And I started adding up all the money I was going to get back from the government, and I was planning a rather exotic vacation <laughs> until I read the fine print and I realized that I didn't qualify and then to put the nail in the coffin, I ran it by Larry. And he said, you don't qualify. <laughs> Ray Stedman was senior pastor at Peninsula Bible Church near San Francisco. And when he was first a minister, as a young minister, he didn't make enough money to pay any taxes. So it was a shock to him one year when he actually did owe money to the IRS. And he says he resented it so much that he made the check out to the Infernal Revenue Service. 
They cashed it. <laughs> the next year, he owed more money. So he made it out to the Eternal Revenue Service. They cashed it. You see, Paul is saying, pay your taxes. Paying your taxes is the will of God. You see, this, this flows right out of verse 2 where he says that we're to be proving what the will of God is. And one of the things that is the will of God for me as a Christian is that I pay taxes. You say, yeah, but I cheat on my taxes, then I give it to the Lord. Don't bother. Because he doesn't want it. In fact, if you notice what he says at the end of verse 6, he says, For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Did you get that? They're servants of God. And so that means that paying taxes is as much a spiritual act of giving as giving to the church. Because you are supporting the servants of God. And then he kind of sums it up in verse 7. He says, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. He gives this general exhortation, Render to all what is due them. And then more specifically, he mentions two things, action and attitude. What's the action? Pay your taxes and pay your customs. Now, that word custom is a little different word, but it kind of runs the whole gamut of everything. That includes it all. Income tax, property tax, sales tax, duties, import, export fees, tolls, pay it all. You know, sometimes we complain a lot about taxes, but without taxes, the government really can't function. And I think Paul was grateful to live under the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire had established the greatest network of roads up to that time in history. And it was there, those very roads paid for by taxes that allowed him to go out and spread the gospel. And I think we should be thankful for the things that our taxes support. Things like the armed forces and national security and national parks and food inspectors and the Center for Infectious Disease and the Federal Bureau of Investigation and air traffic controllers. Paul says the action is pay what's due. Pay your taxes. Pay your customs. Pay your due. That's the action. And then he mentions the attitude. He said you are to fear and honor. You're to Fear and honor your government leaders. Now, how do you do that? Well, let me suggest some ways. Number one, give respect to our leaders. Give them respect. You know, a lot of people right now are upset at the Dixie Chicks because one of them said that she was ashamed that the President of the United States was from Texas. And we should be upset about that because that is being disrespectful to our leader. But you know, I usually find when I'm really pointing hard at somebody else, I've got flaws of my own. And if you go back a few years, I heard a lot of Christians and a lot of even Christian pastors saying similar things about former President Clinton. 
And I would say to you that that is just as disrespectful and wrong. We are to honor our leaders. You see, a soldier salutes an officer, and even though he may not agree with that man's principles, he respects that man's position. We are to respect our leaders. Second idea, we're to pray for them. 1 Timothy 2.2 says, Pray for kings and all who are in authority. I am to honor my leaders by praying for them. And then let me give you a third and final suggestion. I honor my country symbolically. When I stand and take off my hat or cover my heart during the playing of the national anthem. You see, that's the respect that God accepts, expects me to show toward my government and my leaders. Now, let me add another footnote. A lot of Christians struggle with this idea of getting balance in this area because, you see, I am to respect the flag, but I'm not to worship the flag. My country doesn't get my first and foremost allegiance. God does. And I have to realize that when my country steps out of bounds, I may be going a different direction in obedience to God. See, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God doesn't border on the Atlantic and Pacific oceans. In fact, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And in Philippians 3.20, it says our citizenship is in heaven. And so our primary obligation is not to our earthly country. And yet, while I'm here, on this earth, in this country, I'm to be a law-abiding, tax-paying, flag-saluting citizen. In fact, I'm to do that of whatever country I happen to be in. See, that's what Romans 13 is saying. And this applies to Paul under Nero. It applies to us in the United States. It also applies to the Christian who happens to be in Afghanistan or Iran or Iraq or Syria. You see, we need to realize that tomorrow God could call me to another country. Or, God forbid, this country could be overthrown like Iraq was and a new regime could be set up. And I want to say to you that if that happens, I'll have the same responsibility to honor that new flag. You see, whatever country I find myself in, God says, I, as a Christian, am to be salt and light. Now, the common denominator of salt and light is that both penetrate. Salt penetrates food. Light penetrates the darkness. And when salt penetrates into food or meat, the one thing it does primarily is it preserves. And that's what we're to be doing in this society. And if I am salt and light in this world, one of the ways I express that is by my obedience to the government, 
fact, listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.13. He said, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or to governors, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. See, it's my testimony as a Christian to be obedient to the government but because by doing so, I can silence much of the criticism around me. And so how am I to be salt and light in this world? Not by opposing everything the government's doing, but by being a submissive, obedient citizen. You see, our job is to influence society. Christians can keep society from rotting. We're salt and light. Remember when in Genesis, I think it's in Genesis 18, where Sodom and Gomorrah was about to be destroyed. And God said to Abraham, if there are ten godly people there, I'll spare it. You see, it doesn't take a whole lot of salt to make a difference. But if we're going to make a difference in this country, it's going to have to also be expressed in our relationship to the government. And what's our relationship to the government? We're to be subject. We're to obey. We're to pay our taxes and honor our leaders for God's sake, for your own sake, and for conscience' sake. You see, being a good kingdom citizen necessitates being a good civil citizen. That's the point. I'm going to ask Danae Payne to come forward. Danae, where are you at, honey? Danae was baptized this morning. I want to give you all an opportunity to meet her and encourage her, so I'm going to ask Danae to go this is her mom, Joe, to the lobby, and afterwards, I'll give you that chance. Let's close in prayer together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for how practical it is, that it really tells us how we are to relate to the government. Father, we're thankful to be under a government like we have, that gives us such freedom, and yet, Father, we pray that you would keep us from being so critical oftentimes. And Father, help us to be cooperative, obedient citizens that not only are gaining praise from the government, but being a testimony to those around us of the reality of Christ in our lives. Father, I pray that we would be salt and light in our neighborhood, in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world. And Lord, make a difference through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.